Good morning. I would invite you to open your Bible or read on the screen with me from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of God of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of God. Let's bow and pray. Father God, you're so good to us. I pray for this morning, as you work in our hearts, that you would remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness in each one of our lives. Father, we give you this time, and Lord, may you imprint in our hearts what you would have for us this day. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Lara. Thanks, team. Thanks, everyone, for worshiping. So as you saw, we're, we're diving into a new series today called The End of the Wilderness, which is going to be an exploration of the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to be in this series from now until the beginning of the summer, which actually means we're going to go through this book quite quickly. Um, so we're not going to actually hit on every verse, so, but I'm going to trust that all of you who call Emmanuel Church your home will be reading along. Uh, if you're not signed up for our newsletter, you're going to want to sign up for it because each week we're going to put out what uh, chapters we're going to be kind of in on that following Sunday. And I'm only going to preach on a few verses or maybe a, a part of a chapter or a chapter in a little bit each week. But sometimes we're going to cover, you know, four or five chapters in a week. And so you're going to want to sort of read along as you can. So make sure if you're not signed up, you sign up at the Connect Desk today. And uh, if you really don't want to sign up, just read ahead. Read the whole thing and you'll be good as we go along. All 40 chapters uh, are going to take us through this sort of incredible journey. And it's really important that we study this as followers of Jesus because Exodus is arguably one of the most important books of the Bible. Now, I, I always say that with a little reservation. People are like, well, what do you mean one book's more important than the other? And it's not that I'm saying that there's not value and importance in every book, but Exodus sets up a lot of the framework for how we understand the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It provides us with ethical background information into the Jewish people. It talks about the cultural identity of God's people as they were formed into a nation, as they went through some incredible trials and hardships on their way from slavery into a place where they actually have God dwelling in their midst. And so while we're studying a 3,200-year-old history book, we're actually studying something that has a lot to say to us today, especially as followers of Jesus who want to sort of get the insight into what the rest of God's word really has to say. Now, as we're studying this book, we're going to notice that there's sort of two chunks to the book. There's sort of two sections which frame for us an understanding not just of this book, but of how we can understand our own identity as followers of Jesus. In chapters 1 to 15, we're going to see the part of the Israelite story where they exit slavery. Hence the name Exodus, the exit out of slavery. And then we're going to go into a second part, which is chapters 16 to 40, 
which is all about the Israelites' journey away from slavery as they learned and struggled not just to live, but to learn to trust and follow God and be in his presence. And so really we can see that this book is about two things. One is it's about leaving slavery, but the second part is it's about leaving slavery to join God and be in his presence. And that's the Christian experience. That's what we hope for as followers of Jesus. We learn to sort of receive freedom from the things that hold us back so that we can experience more and more of who God is. Now, while Lara just read our our text for this morning, I just want to sort of set us up for where we're at in the story, because we're actually jumping in. Those verses you might have noticed were from chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, but there's a whole bunch of story that comes before it. If you were to read the book of Exodus in its Hebrew, you'd actually see that the very first word that's written in this book is the word and. And. This gives us a clue that we're in the middle of a story already. While it's a fresh book, it's a continuation of what's already going on. We're in the middle part of God forming a nation that he would call his people, who he would spend a special time with and who would get to know him and be in his presence. If you were to flip back in your Bible, or maybe it's just up at the top of your page, you'd see at the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that we're in sort of a story of a guy named Joseph. Now, even if you haven't been in church for a very long time, you know Joseph. You know the guy with the Technicolor dream coat, right? Like, we know the story. We're familiar with that. But, but Joseph was this guy that God had used. He'd rescued from a troublesome situation and eventually placed him into a prominent place in the nation of Egypt, almost as sort of their prime minister, so that he could be a part of saving his family and ultimately the Israelite nation so that they could thrive and live out the promise or the covenant that God has made with his people. And so here we are, we're sort of in the middle of this story. Joseph saved his brothers. They've come, they've gathered, they've gone through some journey, and the Israelite nation is now established in Egypt. But that word and actually is 400 years of knowledge. So we go from that story in Genesis through 400 years in that little three-letter word to where we start today. Joseph and his brothers have now died, as have many of their descendants. Uh, But while they're dying, a whole lot more people are being born. And that's where we actually start in uh, Exodus 1 verse 8. We see that the people have become quite prolific. The good Israelites take serious God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And multiply they did in the nation of Israel. And they get a little bit out of hand. And so down the line of the pharaohs, these kings of Egypt, we end up with this one ruler who starts to have a bit of a problem. He's like, they are multiplying a little bit too much. In fact, they're going to overrun us if we're not careful. And so while he doesn't remember what Joseph had done to save his nation, he decides to enslave Joseph's descendants. And so he takes all the people of Israel and he commands them now in slavery to go and build monuments and cities to his name. And so the people live in captivity, but they don't stop multiplying. 
They keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and generation and generation and person and person and person pops up. And we have all these Israelites. And now the Pharaoh's at a real concern because not only are they outnumbering them, but they're now going to be able to have enough power that they can actually tip the whole balance and take over the country. And so Pharaoh says, let's deal with this. Let's kill all their sons. All the babies who are born, I want you to kill them. He says that to the Egyptian midwives. And the plan didn't really go as he planned, but he continues on and he starts to slaughter all of the innocent children. And this is so that he can have population control and a greater sort of psychological control over the nation of Israel. And so in many ways, his plan was mostly successful, except for the fact that God used the brilliance of one young mother to save her son, a guy named Moses. Moses is, in many ways, where a lot of the time we would start as we look at the book of Exodus. But we're not going to do that as we go through this series over the next number of weeks. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that oftentimes when we study these historical accounts that we read in the Bible, we make one of two mistakes. The first mistake is we take the central person in the narrative and we make them the hero of the story. And Moses has a lot of interesting things that take place in his life. He's actually had all throughout the decades, even to today, books written on leadership because of how he led his people. But there would be a mistake in putting Moses first. The second problem that happens is sometimes when we study these narratives, we end up coming to the book as a teaching for moralistic lessons. We end up just saying, okay, I'm going to put myself into the story and pretend that I'm either Moses or one of these slaves. And as I study this, I'm going to learn what's right and wrong. And we end up walking away from our time together studying God's word with a view of sort of, am I going to fit in some level of moral superiority? But that's not what the book of Exodus was designed for. That's not what any of scripture was designed for. While Exodus gives us these great leadership lessons around the person of Moses, while it gives us amazing moral and ethical teachings which will frame the Jewish understanding of following God, the actual focus on the book of Exodus is on God himself. God is meant to be the central figure of the story. He's the central figure of all of history. He's the one who saves Israel from its slavery using a somewhat reluctant leader who, yes, does have a measure of degree of success, but it's only because of what God does in and through Moses. And he does this all, why? Not just so that people can be free and live morally upright lives as good citizens of this new land that he'll lead them to one day. No, he leads them out of slavery so they can be fully in his presence and establish a people group that focus on God alone. And so that's why we're actually starting where we're starting today. We're starting not focusing on Moses' story, but instead on chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, where we see what God can do. So let's go back there and read it, because I've been talking for a while. You might not remember what Lara read a moment ago. And let's read Exodus 2, 23 to 25. It says, during that long period, this slavery period where kids are being slaughtered, the king of Egypt died. While that happened, the Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, it doesn't take any stretch of our imagination to get the fact that the Israelites would have been groaning and crying. Their people have been living for hundreds of years in slavery. They've witnessed the slaughter of their children. They're living in misery. So they cry out. And as they cry out, we see that God responds. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I, I kept coming to this question in my mind, which was, could God be God and not have responded? Could God be God and not respond to what he heard from his people in those days? Well, as I thought about that, I, I sort of thought about people I know who have lived in suffering, and I've thought about my own prayers that I've prayed where I haven't seen answers to them yet to this day, and I, I, I wrestled with this conceptually because it's really easy for people when we're suffering to sort of question God and to wonder, are you, are you really God? Are you really in control? Are you really able to do what you are? Are you really going to live up to what you say? And we begin to ask, is God really God? Is he really the one in control? Does he really have what it, there is that he says? And as I thought about that, I thought about the, that the answer is no. God could not be God if he didn't respond to his people in this way. And the reason I have some conviction in that is because the characteristics that God displays I mean, we're just coming off Easter. Last week, we celebrated what God had done to set people free from the slavery of sin in their lives. And that all poured out of the characteristic that he had of loving kindness. It wouldn't be very loving or kind of God to ignore his people's suffering, at least not permanently. We also have God's faithfulness. God reveals continually in his word that he's the same yesterday, today, forever. Inter times or places go on, it would make sense then God would sorts of doesn't make sense of the fact that Abraham, the enslaved and suffering in captivity. He promised it's unlikely that he and so that leads me to ask if this is in the to, to answer the call of people why were things going this way what was it that God was doing in the time that as I started to think to think about the fact that it makes sense for God for the right time to let his love flow, to release his grace. Jonathan Edwards, revivalist of the 1700s, once preached a sermon are so that Jesus place. So God needs an outlet for his grace. 
world closer and and grace uh in the states goes on and the creed the ruinous fall into that called for recreative work undammed the heart of Christ. Forth further and brighter than it could have otherwise. We've all heard the analogy that we need to understand darkness in order to see light and understand its power and the force that it has. Of humanity, place to go on. Really understand the depths of God's grace. As He sets them free, as he establishes His presence amongst them, He allows them to come crumbling down to their knees, so they really know what it means to be picked up and to be and to be loved, to be welcomed into His. I think that's why, for instance, though, that we have the writer of Exodus using this term, remember. The passage that as God heard the groaning and cries of the Israelites, he remembered his covenant with the people. Now, it's really important to recognize that remembering the author's day meant something different than it does for us today. God was not trying to remember his promise to you know, when an iPhone goes missing in our house, we use the Find My iPhone app to make that annoying little ding so that we can scour around. The but to take action deliberately on what is recalled. This moment. God to the full extent of who he is, how he's in control, and what it means to be loved and in his grace. God knew exactly what he needed to do in order to truly save his people. And he knew exactly how he was going to do it and the moment he was going to do it. And we'll see that in a sec when we come to another point where we see how Moses gets involved. And this is so like God, isn't it, right? I mean, he didn't just do it 32 years ago to do this for Israelites in slavery. But he's done it for us today. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came at precisely the right moment in history to free us from slavery to our slation says, at just the right time, God sent his son. I've heard people sort of debate, why did God wait for such a time? I mean, it seems so horrible when you look back on history, when we read the Old Testament, to, to watch the struggle and toil, and when we put ourselves into the story, we wonder, where is God's grace in this? But when we do that, we do, and we don't carefully reflect on how God works through human history, we miss out, again, God's grace. God waited till exactly the right moment. As the Romans began to occupy the nation of Israel, they were in the midst of doing something that had never taken place in human history. The time when Jesus came, we actually see for the very first time in history, civilization was unified. We've heard of the Roman roads, right? All roads lead to Rome. 
Well, they'd actually gone through their conquests and been able to bring through all these pathways that led to a central place. And from a central place, everything else could be distributed. There was this time in history where philosophy and theology were the common things to discuss in such a way that it was acceptable to come in with a wildly different interpretation of how the world takes place, and you were allowed to express that and convince people of it in a different kind of way that had never taken place. And actually today, I don't think it takes place in the same sort of way. And so as God sent his son to live and inhabit in that day, he had waited for the precise moment when the gospel of Jesus could spread out down those Roman roads, through the streets, into these forums of philosophy, so that the message could endure to this very that certain kind of way. What God's done in our lives is we for what God's going to do in other people's lives. Sometimes it's difficult to wonder why does God have a certain day. We study and look at how through history. We realize that God's timing is perfect, and he wants to do these things so things can be forever changed. And he also wants to think in the long range. One of the characters long range. One of the characters in C.S. Great Divorce says this. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. Say of some type of suffering, nothing that can make up. But in that moment, they do not know that heaven, presence of God, and turn even their agony. There's a festival called Passover that takes place in the Jewish calendar. The Jewish culture are celebrate that even though their ancestors had and at a certain time, day, day. And I feel so frustrated that there's this thing within me and I just can't bring it up to know what to say. Well, I think if you feel that way, this is a helpful passage because notice what God hears. It says that he hears their groans and their cries. God wasn't listening to the Israelites for a particular eloquent speech that they would give him he wasn't waiting on them to have them articulate things in just such a way that finally i'm able to respond no he took what was going on deep within that they struggled to articulate and he drew it out to himself and then he decided to act and one of the beautiful things we see in the new testament is that god continues to do this today in Romans 8, we read, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. I think that groaning goes two ways. And I think there's just something so beautiful in the fact that God has given us his Holy Spirit as followers of him so that when we are feeling 
good and we're feeling like we can go out into the world, yes, we're empowered and we, we're able to go and take his message to the nations, but when we are feeling crumbled too, there's something that takes place. The Holy Spirit takes those things that we groan about, we cry about, the things that are so painful we don't even want to articulate it. We don't even want to think about it. We want to block it away. And he takes that and the Holy Spirit brings that to God the Father so that he can answer in his perfect timing and in the perfect way. God hears you when you're struggling. He hears you when you're crying, when you're groaning and moaning, and there's nothing that you can articulate. And he sees you too. In verse 25, Exodus 2.25, it says, So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That word look right there in the Hebrew language gives us this sense that God goes beyond seeing with his eyes, but he really saw the Israelites. Have you ever experienced this when someone actually sees you and they actually see you? Not just like physically in the room, but you understand that they know who you are. It can be a close friend who just knows what you're going through and they, they, they see you. And they love you for who you are. It can be a spouse who sees you even when you don't know how to act in a certain situation. Well, far beyond that, God has this intimate and personal acquaintance and knowledge about the particulars of every one of our lives. And that's what he had for the Israelites then, but it's what he continues for us today. It says in Scripture that God knitted us together in our fiber of our being and he sees and he draws it out so that he can see exactly what we need even in the moment of our suffering he hears you and he loves you God knows what that place of suffering is for you today he knows about that pain that's gone on and maybe step back from some past part of your life that you just can't vocalize because it, it's too painful to use. He wants to draw that out of you, bring hope and his presence to your suffering. doesn't matter doesn't matter if there's nothing because God draw it to himself I'm right at the end of chapter two going into chapter to experience the burning bush well when that happens Moses isn't a young man he's out and he kills someone and then he flees then he goes and lives in Midian for 40 years before he's called 65 years in order to answer a prayer then and there that should give us encouragement that though sometimes we don't see what God is doing, even in the midst of our, the depth of our cries and our groaning, God is at work to accomplish his good plans for us. God was so incredible that he worked in this way. 
And what's even more amazing to me is that the Israelites didn't deserve it in any sort of way. God's faithful even when we are not. Notice that it doesn't say that they cried out to God. Notice it doesn't say like we see in other sort of places, like perhaps in the story of Daniel where people in captivity cried out to God for salvation. There's nothing like that that takes place here in the text today. It just says that they were groaning and crying and God heard them. They were weeping in their misery. They weren't worshiping the God who could save. Yet even still, God intervened. Their cries went up to God even if they didn't know where to direct them on that day. This is going to be a message for us all the way through. We're going to see when the manifest presence of God is on top of a mountain and they know their leader is up there encountering the living God to bring news back down to them that they sit there and they go, well, we can't wait. Let's make an idol. Then we can worship that. And we'll see that in both of those circumstances, though the people were not faithful, God was. And that's something we can celebrate. It's something we can celebrate all the way through. Because the truth is, even in our pursuit of Jesus, we will continue to fail him, to be unfaithful, and sometimes to be flat out disobedient. Yet, there's still God's grace. God remembers and he acts on his promises. But while he acts on those promises, one of the great things for us as followers of Jesus is he doesn't remember and act upon everything else out of his good grace. In Hebrews chapter 8, we read about this new covenant, right? We're, 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 we're talking right now about this promise that God had given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, right? That's the, the old covenant, we call it. This is this promise that we live in where, where there's this God that says, I will do this if you do that. And that takes place. And in there, there's this whole system of sacrifice, of needing to constantly atone for, for our sin and the ways that we fail. And, and we go, man, we're not faithful. So God says this. And all that was set up to take place to show the people who would follow God that there's no way we can do it on our own. But the good thing now is that we live in a new age under a new covenant, under a new promise. And we read this in Hebrews chapter 8. This is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel. And in this case, as we listen to the book of Hebrews, you need to hear church when it says Israel. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of my church. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. When we come into God's presence, when we choose to receive the fullness of his grace as he enables us to do that at the right time and the right place in the season of our lives, he chooses to remember his promise that he delivered on the cross to save. 
to save us from the slavery of our sin and our past and our pain to be fully in his presence. And as he does that, he chooses not to remember and not act on our sin and the injustices we've caused in our day. What a beautiful gift from God that we can see as we enter into this story. The God we know and that we've hopefully had an opportunity to encounter as we've gone through our lives as a God who is faithful in remembering his people even when it's not justified. We need not to forget that he sees us, that he hears us, that he cares for us. In many cases that he's already set us free and he will continue to set us free from the slavery to our sin. And so as we go from this place, we need to remember that even if we feel like we're in the wildest of the wilderness, even if we feel that there's something so heavy that we can't even articulate it, that God is at work in our lives, that he's drawing the groans out from within us in order to make space for God's grace to pour in. So as we close this time together today, I want us to, to do something a little bit different. I'm not asking you to go apply sort of a moral or lesson from this today, but what I instead want you to do is take a moment to reflect on the goodness of who God is. If you've got notes, you can write it down or just lock it in your brain, but for just a moment, I just want you to just, just focus in on yourself and God, and I want you to ask, what can you appreciate more about who God is? Now I want to invite you to just silently pray. Thank him for whatever it is that is coming to mind. About who he is and, and what he's done, whether it was back in Moses' day or in your life today. Thank God for what he's done. Thank God for what he's doing. Now as you continue to pray, I want you to draw to mind that thing you can't articulate. What's the thing that's causing you pain today? What's the thing that makes you want to groan and cry deep down inside? I invite you to just hold that out before the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit take it. Allow him to articulate it in the way that you can. And then reflect back on who that God is that you love. Know that God will allow you to let that thing go. As you groan, 
as you cry. God wants you to know that he will intervene. You might see it today. You might not see it until eternity. But you are loved. 